I want to do a series, and as we move along here, and I, I thought this would be a great place for us. We'll, uh, we'll move our way through it in uh, a little bit less regimented form than we might do on a Sunday, and I hope that's okay, and I hope that also provides you an opportunity to interact a little bit more. I'm, I'm okay if you put your hand up. I know it's church. I'm okay if you even talk. We can talk back. Uh, I, I had a, a professor in, uh, in seminary whose name was Alex Montoya, and uh, he, he wrote a book called Preaching with Passion, and he exemplifies passion like no other man, even perhaps more so than your former pastor whom we love. Um, but, but Dr. Montoya would really get about it, and one of the first things he would do when he'd be in a church is he preached to a Hispanic congregation, and he would start to interact with the audience, and he would ask questions, and he would say, this is church, but you talk to me. It was a one of you, you talk to me. And he had this wonderful uh, Hispanic accent and this great hair and uh, just a, a wonderful man of God. So it's okay if you talk a little bit in church, particularly here on a Wednesday. And if there's some things you're like, well, you know, what about that? Please feel free. And I know it might take a bit to get there, but I would love that. I'd welcome it. I may, I may not always have an answer to your question, but I'll always find it and I'll come back to you. So please know that. Well, as we come to Ruth, this little book nestled here at a very pivotal point in the Scripture. This transition between the time of the judges, really the time of God's more formal hand with the children of Israel, into the time of the kings that began with Samuel, and who was the last judge, and on into David, Saul and David, who were the first and second kings. This is a really pivotal text. It's a tremendous story, and it is placed at this key juncture in the failure of Israel. And that's something that we can't lose sight of, because this book is very much of a dichotomy of failure and faith. And we're going to see that in a big way, right off the bat, even this evening. It's a wonderful example of God's faithfulness and his sovereignty, even amidst man's failures. There, there are some incredible doctrinal aspects in here. There are some genealogical aspects that really connect us all the way through to the Lord and that we can't miss. Although we think of, it's really important that we focus on that and understand what the Lord's doing and, and really the rather... Um, unusual way if it were us trying to line out something like this that that genealogy occurs the book is it's very much like an extended story of the prodigal son and interesting in that regard in the way that it lays out only there are are many more rebukes in here and even a much more stunning reward as we get this true representation this narrative about what god did through ruth and naomi and their families god, god's mighty hand has seen it almost every turn in this text and and really as we know it's one of the most beautiful pictures of love in the scripture and yet the word love is never used interestingly enough the, we begin in, in verse 1, and as we do, and we're going to go through verses 1 to 14, um, not all tonight, um, we'll kind of move along as, as we get there. 
And so I'll, I'll allow you to kind of input as you have a desire, and we'll, we'll pull back and we'll address questions or issues that come up, and, and we'll move along and uh, try to get to reasonable break points as we're able, but I, I'm not going to get too rigid about that. I just I want to let the text flow, and I want to let us get to it as it comes forward. There's two key sections in these first 14 verses. The first one is in verses 1 to 5, and I think that's probably about what we'll see this evening. And in verses 1 to 5, we see this faithless departure. That's what I've titled these, these first five verses, is a faithless departure. And then when we move ahead, we see a faithful return in, in verses 6 to 14. A, a faithful return. Both of these points show one theme, and that is that God is faithful despite man's actions. And this theme could really be the description of the entire book of Ruth. And for that matter, not just the book of Ruth, but really the entire scripture, is it not? Do we not over and over again in God's word see, see his faithfulness in man's failure? And frankly, that is such a pivotal message for us, isn't it? Because I fail, and, and you fail. And, and God is saying throughout the Scripture to us, that's okay. It's all right if you are not perfect. I don't expect you to be perfect. I expect you to continue to seek to grow, to continue to seek to pursue holiness and godliness. And that's what God wants from each of us. And it's a blessing to see that come to light through this text. And certainly the location of this text is prominent with regards to failure. As we'll see, the, the scripture occurs during the time of Judges. This was perhaps one of the most wicked times in the nation of Israel's history. And when we consider their history, that's saying something. Because there was some bad stuff going on pretty frequently. Obviously, right up to the time that the Lord gave them over, once they had separated into the ten northern tribes and the two southern, each into captivity. But even at that, this still stands out as a hallmark of one of the wicked times in the nation of Israel. Consider some of the elements, and I know you're familiar with the story, but think of J.L.'s murder of Sisera. I mean... Here you got this wonderful little Jewish woman who invites the guy in for a glass of milk. How sweet. And then drives a tent peg into his forehead. What? Yeah, not so sweet, huh? Crazy. You've got the deceitful murder uh, of Eglon by Ehud, the, uh, the left-handed man. I'm not sure if that's saying anything. I don't know if any of you are left-handed. There's some, some verbiage there. I don't want to get too far. There's the slaughter of Gideon's brothers, 70 of them. Uh, inconceivable. The, the tragedy of Jephthah's daughter, you know, and, and his acknowledgement to God that whatever he first saw, he would dedicate and sacrifice to the Lord. And, and as he returns home, his daughter coming out. And the, the multifaceted wickedness of Samson. So, and, and really, the, the book is well-titled Cycles. For there are these cycles of wickedness and return that go on throughout the book of Judges. And, and this wonderful little book of Ruth is placed right here in the middle of Israel's failure. 
There's, there's first this failure that's occurred of Israel's theocracy. If you're not familiar with that term, a theocracy is a government of God. Democracy, and, and so we kind of hear the familiar ring of those words. It was a government where God was the government. Everything was about God. He was in control. He was to be worshipped. When we consider the, the foundation of offering, people will often say, you know, Pastor, well, what do you think about tithing? And I would say, tithing is a wonderful consideration in the Old Testament. Because there is no tithing in the New Testament. In the New Testament, it's free will giving. It's an offering. In the Old Testament, tithing was a tax. And of course, a tithe meant a tenth. And it wasn't that there was a 10% tax. There was the 10% tax that was the temple tax. That was the money that was to go to the theocracy, to the Levites and to all of the administration of the temple and all of the sacrifices that needed to occur on behalf of the nation. Then there was a 10% tithe in addition to that, which was the personal contribution. And then there was another 10% every three years. So in effect, there was a 23 and a third percent tax or tithe that went on. So when people say, well, you know, should I do 10%, you know, it's not about the percentage. It's about what the Lord would do on your heart. You know, when my boys started working, I said, you know, you, you need to give to the work of the Lord. And they said, well, how much? I said, I don't know how much. I said, you need to decide that. You need to figure out based on the work that you're putting in and what your needs are and what you want to put into savings, how much you're going to give to the work of the Lord. And that's the same for each of us. So, and it was all because, and, and is much more so now, it's not a, a command to give to God, it's a heart to God. And that's what was to be represented at that time. There was room in the Old Testament system for even greater giving. But those were the amounts that were legislated. And it was because God was the one who everything was to be directed to. Everything was to come together towards the temple. Everything centered around the temple. It was the center of the universe. All of the sacrifices, all of the priest's work, the requirement that the families came to the temple multiple times per year. But Israel fails to do what God said. And then, so this is the failure of the first system in the monarchy, which is really highlighted by judges, and now we're moving to the failure of the second system, which is going to be the monarchy. Very much a word we're familiar with in England and the system of government there with kings and so on and so forth. Something that God had ordained. We go back to Deuteronomy. He talked about kings. God knew that was coming. And they, they wanted a, a king like all the other nations around them. And 1 Samuel 8 tells us about that. So this book of cycles of wickedness and repentance and restoration. They would act wickedly. God would judge them. He would bring his wrath upon them. They would repent and seek his face. And he would relent and return them and restore them back to their condition. And they would immediately turn again to their wickedness. During the, this wickedness, God would bring these judgments. And that judgment, and it, this is almost a universal biblical theme, there were four components of judgment that you will see in God's word. They are pestilence, and they are famine, and they are war, 
and they are plagues. So, and you will see those very four connected from, uh, from our text, even from the Pentateuch, all the way to Revelation. And, and so these elements are occurring continuously. And yet through all of this, we see that God is faithful despite man's faithlessness. And something I, I, I have mentioned before, and you know, I'll try not to make my hobby horse, although writing on it uh, as frequently as I can for this doctoral project brings it to my mind a lot, so I may bring it to yours a little more. But that is this idea of grace amidst judgment. One of the challenges that so many people have in the church, and and I've even been talking about it this week with people who have uh, left our church or other people who are known in the community or people who I know from my church back in California, is this aspect of not understanding God's judgment and thinking that His judgment is harsh and that it's unfair. I would ask you to consider if God's judgment is not truly an act of grace in every occasion. And I I would take that all the way back to the fall and all the way through with the one possible exception of Armageddon. Up until that point, you you read through Revelation and and the bulls and the seals and the trumpets and horrific things happening, right? Third of the planet being killed, water to blood, ah, crazy stuff. And in all of it, there is almost in every case a follow-up to that that says, but men hardened their heart. Why is that in there? Because that's the whole point of the judgment. It's to get men's hearts to understand that they need Christ. And so that component of judgment is, is something that God uses and, and, and we need to understand that there is a great amount of grace in it. Well, this leads to what I've titled our message for tonight, and that is faithfulness in the face of folly. Faithfulness in the face of folly. Let's take a look at our text, and I want to read through this whole section with you, and, uh, and then we'll come back and, and start to break it down a little bit. Ruth Chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth, and they lived there about ten years. Then both Malon and Chilion also died And the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab, for she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. So she departed from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah." 
And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest, each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, but we will surely return with you to the people. But Naomi said, Return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law And Ruth clung to her. Faithfulness in the face of folly. There's two actions of faith that illustrate man's condition here. Two actions of faith that illustrate man's condition. And the first is a faithful departure. In these first five verses, a faithful departure. God's faithfulness in the face of man's faithlessness. Now, we need to understand what's going on in this, this whole idea of the argumentation that's being brought forward here. We heard, we heard it last Sunday, and we heard it the Sunday night prior, and it is an argument that is contrary to fact. It's a negative argument. When we looked at the text last week, you remember that the qualifications of an elder at that one point had the, the five negative statements. And we looked at Psalm 19 two weeks ago. We saw that Psalm 19 was talking about how there was no voice. There was no sound. There was nowhere that they were not heard. And those negative arguments are showing something to us, trying to illustrate the opposite fact. So what we're seeing here is we are seeing the aspect of faithfulness being illustrated through faithlessness. For the weakness of man. And it is a very common mechanism that we see often in Scripture. And the first verses are punctuated by the faithlessness of men. Down the road we'll even see that it's also displayed by some of the women. But in verses 1 and 2 we see a faithful husband. A faithless husband, excuse me. The first element in verse 1 is the timing of the story. And we see that now it came about in the days when the judges governed. We talked about when the time with the judges were, but they want to make sure that we understand exactly what's going on. This story is placed in the middle of this great wickedness that's going on in the nation. This little book of victory placed between these two phases of great failure of the theocracy and the failure of Israel in it and the monarchy and the coming failure of it. So in between is sandwiched this little picture of how God is faithful and how he is working. Why would you put it there? What happens when we see a time where our, our kids are struggling or our grandkids are struggling? What do we want to do? Do we want to just say, buck up, you know, grab those bootstraps and let's press on? 
Well, I've done that. And that's usually not the best approach. Typically, uh, a, a more appropriate and encouraging approach is to come alongside them and to nurture and encourage them and let them know it's okay. That things don't always go great, but they need to press on. The same message, but to do it from an encouraging point of view. And here amidst all of this failure, God sticks in this book to tell us, keep pressing on, because our God will be faithful. And it's a blessing for us to understand that. The scene of this story is during a famine. Famine was God's mechanism of punishment in this circumstance. Let me remind you about another text. I'm going to turn to uh, 2 Samuel chapter 24 and verse 13. And you're familiar with this text. 2 Samuel 24, 13 is the census that David brought forth upon the nation of Israel. And listen to what the Lord said through the prophet Gad to David in verse 13 of 2 Samuel 24. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall seven years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and see what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Three of the four mechanisms of judgment brought forward for David to choose from because these are God's modes of bringing judgment. Here we have the mechanism of famine. One commentator said this is God's hickory stick that he uses to punish David. I don't know what it may have been for you when you were growing up, what mechanism of punishment your parents may have employed. I remember vividly my father's story about his mom, probably best of all. They grew up in Montana, out in the, the woods there. And, I mean, the nearest town, if you could call it that, was 200 people. And when he would get in trouble, she would just quietly walk into the kitchen and grab a knife out of the drawer and say, Jackie, go down to the creek and cut me a willow. And don't make it a small and I thought, man, now that was, that was some time for pondering, wasn't it? That, that was a wise woman who gave that child time to think about all the way down. What do I cut? How many times am I going to get it? Well, God allows us those same opportunities, does he not? He brings the judgment to us in just the same way. And here he uses famine for that judgment. And this was a common method. We saw much famine that was going on through the time of Judges. And I would present to you that it may very well be the least severe of God's judgments. Interesting, isn't it, that in that text, in 2 Samuel 24, 13, it is the one that does not appear. We all know that, you know, there are various levels of judgment. There, there are timeouts, and sometimes we use timeouts too much, and we need to understand that children are designed to receive punishment, and it isn't always in the corner. Um, sometimes it is on that backside that God has designed for that very purpose, and Scripture tells us about that. So here we are during this time of Judges. Uh, Kylan Dalich, uh, very famous and older commentators, placed this during the time of Gideon, which I think is probably an accurate reflection based on the different facets that are going on in the book, and we'll see some of those as we move along. Well, God is bringing these repeated famines, and in the midst of it, 
Elimelech takes his family and moves. This is completely contrary to God's plan, which we should expect. This is a picture of God's faithfulness in man's faithlessness. So as a result of this, as a result of the discipline, Elimelech leaves. Uh, Here's this famine that's coming upon the nation because of their wickedness, and he says, I'm out of here. Well, what's the problem with that? A few things. For you dads out there, consider how you would feel if it was time to discipline your son and he ran. Might that anger you? Might you be inclined to give him perhaps a bit more stern judgment when he returned? Yes, I would. And God also, in the same way, is not happy when, he, when we would run from his punishment. We're reminded of Jonah, are we not? Um, yeah, Lord, the Ninevites, I don't think so. Let's go the other way as fast and hard as we can. Didn't go too well. I don't want to find that great fish prepared for me coming up out of Mobile Bay. All right? I want to do what the Lord says. And, and here we find that he was not. You know, it's interesting. I, I remember being on the wrong end of one of these type of situations when I was a young boy. I was uh, with my brother at the ranch in Montana, and my dad had bought a brand new twenty-two, And it was a sharp little gun. Had a walnut stock, really high gloss finish, had a scope on it. I mean, a twenty-two with a scope, really, all we did was shoot gophers. Um, but I took that gun. My dad had dropped my brother and I off at the ranch, and I took that gun, and we went walking out in the field to see what we could shoot, and got kind of tired of shooting gophers, and we got to the old ranch house about a mile up, the homestead, where my grandpa was born, and, uh, you know, there's a couple buildings around there. They're mostly loafing sheds, and we kind of decide we're going to, you know, turn into the, the military mode. So, you know, I got my brother behind me, and I come up to the wall, and I'm looking in the window, and looking around the corner, and You know, all of a sudden I decided, hey, this is going to be great. So I grab the gun and I bust out the window and then I fire a few shots. Had a lever action. It was great. Kind of fire a few shots there into that empty old barn building. And it wasn't all that exciting, frankly. Um, You know, I was like, well, that was okay. It was over. I mean, you know, I guess I thought it was kind of like the rifleman. If you remember who the rifleman was or, or if you don't, I guess we could go to to, to Rambo or uh, somebody like that, although I think the, uh, the illustration falls down pretty quickly when we start to think about Stallone. But anyway, um, I'm, I'm skulking around the building and it happens, and so I bust the window out and I take the shots, and, and I was like, well, that was over. I guess no gophers. Maybe we'll just walk back to the house. And then I look down at the gun. And this brand new walnut stock on this beautiful 22 got a gash in it about like that. I'm going, oh, there's going to be a whipping when my dad finds out about this. Well, I purposely orchestrated that so that when I knew dad was coming back, because you could see quite a ways down the county road there at the ranch, and when I saw that, um, grandpa was going out to do a little watering, so I said, I'm going to jump in the truck with grandpa and go do the watering, so maybe Terry will get the brunt of this, my little brother. What a great brother I was, wasn't I? And, and dad will, you know, exercise a little of his wrath till he figures out that it was me and maybe it'll be a little easier on me. Well, it wasn't the case. Uh, his anger definitely increased. Or at least it, it was all I needed at that point. And I think we can all relate to fleeing. 
in times of discipline. I think we can all relate to a desire to move away from difficulty, can't we? It's, it's something that none of us love. It's nothing we want to be a part of. Have you ever been tempted to run during those times, or have you done it? Have you ever moved away from those difficult interactions with people that the Scripture would call you to come face-to-face to your brother or sister with? Running from discipline only brings trouble. And what must we remember about discipline from Hebrews chapter 12? The Lord loves those whom he disciplines. Any son whom does not receive discipline is an illegitimate son. None of it is pleasant for the time, but it is necessary for godliness. And it's been said that this aspect of running from judgment particularly in these areas of famines, caused some other significant problems for another biblical figure, and that would be Abraham. Remember what happened when there was a famine in Egypt? What what did old Abraham do? Abram at that time. I'm out of here. I'm going to Egypt. Well, well, how'd that go for him? Well, first off, he he gives his wife up, right, to the king. Yeah, she's my sister. Um, Bad idea. And... And then he, gosh, this is a great place. I'm going to pick up a couple of handmaids, bring them up. And Hagar comes with him back to Israel. How'd that go for him? Not so good. When judgment comes, when difficulties come, beloved, we have to stand for those. We have to realize that whatever they may be, that we have to stand there. And we don't always understand when it's judgment or when it is just the elements of this world. But the note for us here is that we must stand in those cases and not flee from it. We must face the music. Because God allows nothing into our lives except that which is for our own good. Amen? All things work together for good to those who love God and who are called according to his purposes. Are you here tonight and love Jesus Christ as the Lord? I know many of you have endured so many difficult trials, and I praise the Lord for that. You are a testimony to the rest of us, especially of some of us that might be younger. I I consider myself younger, although the mirror keeps lying to me a little bit, but anyway... We need to understand those aspects of standing in those times. So, so here we have this man from Bethlehem of Judah who goes to Moab with his family. And he errs in running because it is such a bad idea to run from this judgment. We see troubles in our lives and, and we must not move from there. There are many in our church that have left They saw a bad situation. They saw something they didn't like that didn't fit their needs, and so they went somewhere else. That is our mentality. Have it your way. That is our mantra in the American culture. That is not what God would have for us. We need to stand firm. And this reminds me of my past before accepting Christ. I was running in every direction, completely out of control, trying to ignore his call on my life. And I can tell you of about four specific examples, which we didn't discuss in the testimony time, where I got really close to coming to know the Lord and I ran. And perhaps you have had the same. And because of that, I missed God's blessing for a much greater amount of time. Is this where you maybe are today? Are any of you running from difficulties in your own life and therein running from God? 
ultimately running from his blessing. If so, I would love to talk to you. If there are issues in your life for which you're struggling and you don't understand and, you're, and perhaps they are keeping you from fully committing to God and growing in Him and understanding the full joy that there is to be had as a Christian, I want to ask you to come and talk with me or talk with one of our elders. We would be so blessed. Please don't continue to run from the Lord. Our lives are, are, are as if they were uh, as slender as a spider's web, as Jonathan Edwards said, hanging over the flames of hell. And with one lick of that fire, we could be done and dropped into an eternity apart from Christ. We must not let that happen. We must continue to face the things that God brings. Well, this man is not only running but he is running from God, and his direction is really bad. He goes to Moab. Moabites were distant relatives of the Israelites. Moab first appears in Scripture back in Genesis 19.7, and it was a community that was named after the incestuous relationship of Lot and his daughter and the offspring of them. So that was their reputation. Not good when that is what your your hierarchy and and what your background represents these people were a blight on the landscape and this is where he was running running was wrong running to moab was way wrong but another significant point is where he ran from in the middle of verse two elimelech was an ephrathite of bethlehem in judah His home in Bethlehem of Judah has much significance and so also does a great amount of verse 2. Look at some of the information that's in there. Here we find out the names of his family, Elimelech and Naomi and their two sons, Malon and Chilion. Elimelech means my God is king. Eli is the Greek word for my God. Melech is king. So his name means my God is king if only he would have thought about that. And where do you think Naomi comes from? My first guess was bitter because that's how she later describes herself. Interesting, it's not. Actually, her name means pleasant or lovely or delightful. What a contrast, isn't it? And then their kids, Malon and Chilion, had, had kind of bad names, um, to say the least. Malon, Malon meant weak or sick. Hmm, probably because of the way he was born. Chilion meant failing or pining away. I, I think the, the note to us is don't name your kids or encourage your grandkids. Don't use Malon and Chilion. Not good biblical names. Stay away from those. Additionally, in verse 2, we see that they're Ephrathites. Well, that is those from Ephrath. That is a term that we will see at other places in the scripture that refers to the northern ten tribes. So if you're reading along in some of the later texts in uh, Kings or Chronicles and you see the, the people from Ephrathah or Ephrath, that is simply relating to Israel. But here it is relating to a particular city from which they began. And it's the city where Rachel died. Rachel was giving birth to Jacob when she passed and we think of Jacob and his 12 sons who was that that 12th son who who was he who was the last son of Jacob and Rachel Benjamin that's right Benjamin from Ephrathah 
goes back to Genesis 35, 19, and we see this as such a critical city. Of course we understand it. We understand that this is the city from Micah 5, 2 that was chosen, one too little to be among the others of the nations. But this is a key doctrinal component here, that this is where he's from. Because this location from where Ruth came is where Joseph would have to return for the census. God's hand in the decree of bringing forth the lineage of our Lord occurs clear back here with a woman who is from a tribe that is of the worst possible consideration and a nation of which they are to have nothing to do. Joseph's family was this family, and this was the tie to Christ through David. And here, four generations before David's birth, we see Christ as the one from Judah. And this becomes the connection to Judah. And isn't that stunning? What about Judah do we know? I've always been shocked to consider the blessings that Jacob gave to Judah. Think about what Judah had done. He was a bad kid. He was the one who instigated the sale of Joseph his brother. Not good. He was the one who burned his sister for harlotry. Not good. I thought Joseph should have been the one that was the son of promise, but Judah is the one who is the scepter, who receives the scepter that will not depart from between his feet. And we see something of this in our own lives. When we see things that are wrong, we want to fix them. We want to fix everything. And, and maybe this is more of a male-dominant trait. My wife tells me this often. You don't need to fix this. Just hear it. I don't know if any of you men can relate to that. But we do want to fix it. I would love to have everyone who we've prayed for and talked about who is wrestling with cancer healed from that horrific disease. But God knows best. I hope you're living your life with that in mind, that God knows best, and he is showing us this in this text. But Elimelech's ultimate faithlessness is at the end of verse 2. Look at it with me at the end of verse 2. It says, now they entered the land of Moab, and they remained there. It was bad that he went. It was really bad that he stayed. And because of that, he receives tremendous punishment and we see the penalty in verses three to five in verse three we see this faithless father Elimelech dies God's wrath is swift it is complete and Elimelech should not have fled God's rebuke but he did and he paid the ultimate price interestingly in this text in verse three he is called Naomi's husband there's two things that are reflected here first it is his irrelevance his irrelevance. He has almost nothing to do with this story. He is virtually insignificant. Never would we see in a normal discussion of a Hebrew couple the husband described as a, connected, as a connection to the wife, Naomi. The second failure is the aspect of his faithlessness. And the main point of this message is that he is faithless. He is responsible for this faithless departure. And on the other hand, we'll see that Naomi will ultimately be faithful. Elimelech's death should have been enough. It, it should have been enough warning for his family, but it was not. We're not told the timing here in verse 4, but we can assume it was pretty short after his death. The boys would likely have fallen in love quickly, and yet their father dies prior to their marriage. How do we know that? 
because it says at the beginning of verse 4, they took for themselves Moabite women as wives. No matter how far off he was from understanding and, and obeying Jewish tradition, he would never have moved past or allowed those boys to move past the idea of betrothal. But they choose for themselves wives. So Elimelech is already gone. And then in verses 4 and 5, we see the faithless sons. Rather than leaving and going back home, they stay. And not only they stay, but they marry these local women. Marrying of foreign women, strictly forbidden. Clear back to Deuteronomy 7.3. And some have said, this is only with regards to those nations which God describes back in Deuteronomy 7. And the Moabites are not specifically mentioned. However... They are mentioned in Ezra and Nehemiah as those who are not to be married to those of the nation of Israel. Exodus 34 and 15 speaks against this intermarriage. And why was that? Was God trying to create just this pure race? Was this some super race he was trying to put together? Absolutely not. He understands that from a spiritual point of view, the intermarriage to women of another culture who were desirous of worshiping another god would impact those men and draw them away. We can be a little bit weak, men, when it comes to pursuing the opposite sex. And we can do things that we ought not do. And if we needed any proof of that, all we need to do is look at our culture and how messed up we are with regards to the sex trade in our world. Stunning to consider all that's going on in that particular realm. God knew it would draw their hearts away. What is a message that we need to see in this? For those of you that are parents, for those of you that are grandparents, you must Make certain that your children understand that they need to only be pursuing those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Missionary dating does not work and is not biblical. They can't be allowed to pursue that. They must understand the consequences of what they are going after. And I'll tell you what, I, I'm thankful that now that I think we mentioned when we were here in November that Averill was having his first date while we were here that one night. Went okay, it's still going on. But you know, I've got one thing that I can say. That young lady is a solid Christian woman. Praise the Lord. But I can tell you, even with that, that young boy, he needs a lot of constant reminder about what he ought and ought not do. And so is it today. We must be reminding our kids that they can't be pursuing that. If, if one of our young men or young women are with a man that they think they're in love with, but he's not a believer, tell them to get away from him and get that boy or girl into church. Let them find the Lord and then think about it. Don't take them to church. Maybe don't even take them to your church. But get them there. But these men, like their father, were faithless. And like their father, they would be punished. And in verse 5, they suffer, suffer the same consequences as their father, and they were killed for their iniquity. So the faithless departure is met with stern punishment. But we not be, need be concerned. Because our God is faithful. He will always carry through with his plans, no matter man's faithlessness. And we see that in verse 6. Look at the first part of verse 6. Then she, that is Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law 
that she might return from the land of Moab if only Elimelech would have understood and returned. If only Malon and Chilion had understood and returned. But Ruth or, or Naomi understood and she returned. I want to ask you to turn to one final verse with me in 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 11. It is uh, one of my favorite verses, this, this whole little section of Scripture that, uh, that the Apostle Paul writes to his young protege, Timothy. And uh, actually, we'll begin at verse 10 of 2 Timothy 2 for context. But this is, this is a powerful understanding about the overall premise of this message. And in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 10, we read, For this reason... I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. It is a trustworthy statement. For if we died with him, we also will live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. And then verse 13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Faithfulness is a characteristic of God that cannot be separated from him. What an encouragement to us that God will always be faithful. He will always carry forth on his word. His promises are always yea and amen, no matter what man does. Israel failed over and over and over again. God was faithful to seek to restore them. Even when they were moved away and the worship of the temple removed from them, God will yet be faithful to return them one day to himself. Just as he is faithful to us and our promises, what a blessing this is for us to understand. What a delight for us to know that what God wants from each of us is greater love, greater devotion, greater faithfulness to him. How do we carry that forward? What is it in your life and in your ministry that will allow you to be more faithful? Is it moving out and ministering to some of the dear folks who are struggling in our church? through writing a card, through making a call, through making a visit? Is it about becoming more involved in this church and in the ministries that are going on here, even though you might not know what that is, considering what they may be? Can I tell you a ministry that even in my short time here, I know is really needy in our church? And, and, and some will say, you know, I did that forever and ever and ever. It's our nursery. And many of you are serving there, and thank you for that. We have so many needs, and what a blessing it is to have those needs because, beloved, that is God's faithfulness, showing us his desire to see this church continue to proliferate and move forward. But what's that mean? We all have to take a role, something that maybe we didn't think we could do anymore or would do anymore. You know, participating in some of the, the women's ministry, there's some new programs and things that the women have been launching over the last year and are moving forward. Would you consider being a part of that? Do you know how desperately the younger women in this church need to be partnered and come alongside in a discipleship, one-on-one -on -one relationship with more mature, wiser women? Women understand particularly those who have 
lived with a man for some time about some of the weirdness that we of this chromosome makeup have. Younger girls who are getting married, they look at their husband and they go, what is wrong with this guy? Right? He's got one focus. Um, how do I even deal with that? Is, is there like, is, is there a cross wire somewhere in that brain? Does he need a brick alongside the head? What is it? Do you know how valuable you can be in coming alongside them to shepherd them and help them know? Say, you know, sweetheart, yes, I understand. <laughs> That's what the Bible talks about. And there are a plethora of opportunities here. And God is doing amazing things in them. So I hope that you'll consider finding a way to understand God's faithfulness so that you would not be one who would even be thought of as being faithless. Because God wants us to be, as Romans 8 tells us, more than conquerors in Christ. More than conquerors. For what can separate us from the love of Christ? Neither death, nor famine, nor sword, nor angel, nor principality, nor any other created thing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen.